Welcome, everybody, to episode number 45 of the Average Jake Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Owens, from the Average Jake Firefighter Blog. You know, as we approach the holidays in possibly one of the most difficult years that I've ever experienced in my 38 years on the planet, 39 next month, and probably one of the most difficult years we've had in the fire service, um, you know, we've had our firehouses locked down. We've had family members pass away. We've had, you know, people get sick. Thankfully, we've had a lot of people recover. We've had staffing shortages. We've had people just get infected with this virus. I mean, as I record this podcast, I was a moderate risk exposure to a coworker who tested positive for the coronavirus. And so I had to make a choice of whether to wear a mask for 24 hours constantly at work, isolate myself in the firehouse, not be able to eat with the brothers and sisters at the table, not be able to work out, not be able to do any of those things, or take my personal sick leave home. So I decided to take my personal sick leave and and stay home, which sucks because, you know, part of that draw, at least for me, in the fire services is getting is the brotherhood the camaraderie the getting to be around those people the the kitchen table talks the the training the the physical fitness you know the the just the the interaction and it sucks because you know I now I can't go be a part of that even through the holiday season as we approach I mean I I remember as a uh, young firefighter on the department that I'm at now, um, I'm still a young firefighter, uh, I think, but uh, even as a younger, younger firefighter, a 22-year-old uh, brand-new firefighter in the station, uh, my lieutenant at the time, uh, Billy Tucker, he it was tradition that every shift in December, every night after dinner, we would watch uh, uh, Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So, and that's like one of my favorite movies, Chris, one of my favorite movies of all time anyway, but one of my favorite Christmas movies. And it was my, one of my favorite Christmas traditions in the firehouse is that we're going to watch this movie, you know, maybe not every shift, but man, uh, like a million times throughout uh, the Christmas season. And so, as we start to approach that season and, and, and I'm not able to do some of the things that I, that I like to do during the holiday season with the, the brothers and sisters in the firehouses, um, especially with some of the changes on our job, one of the things that I used to always like to do, uh, even before I was an officer, I would buy everybody on my shift a Christmas present. Um, it's just something that I, I just always felt, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't always happen like that when I was a younger firefighter. Um, but probably about six, seven years on, I made that, I made that decision that I'm going to buy everybody that I work with a, uh, a Christmas present uh, every year, and it was nothing ever anything too terribly big. Uh, a five dollar gift card to Starbucks or one of their favorite places to go grab a coffee or or, or something or a donut or uh, you know you know something something that they could use. Like I got everybody metal wedges one year, got everybody glove straps one year, uh, got everybody beer glasses with the uh, the department patch or our station patch on them. I did that a couple different times um, last year. When I was still a firehouse captain, I got everybody an emblem that you can hang on the wall like the like a like almost like a portrait, like a canvas portrait of the station logo that they could have forever. Um, you know what I mean? Like that that stuff, you know, stuff that you that that really just bleeds the brotherhood of the fire service. Well, and this year, unfortunately, 
with some of the changes in our job, we, we don't have firehouse captains anymore. We moved to captains around, and uh, now I'm a battalion chief aide and so uh, and a command captain, so I don't really have a firehouse. I mean, I, I live in one, and the guys at that firehouse are great, but I don't I don't really have a firehouse anymore. I don't really have a I don't really have you know a shit a, a crew. Um, I'm part of a command team, but I don't really have that. So that's another one of those things that I just feel like I've lost this year. But as I start to think about the losses, they start to mount and they can get they can get heavy on you, and you and you start to you start to almost resent the job a little bit, or at least your own department. Uh, my brother said it best, and I think I've said it on the podcast before that. Being a firefighter is great. It's working for the fire department. That sucks. And I don't think that anybody – I think that everyone has felt like that in the past, at least at some point in your career. You're going to have ups and downs. It's a roller coaster. But I wanted to take this opportunity today uh, as we approach the holidays to highlight the things we need to be thankful for and to reset as we end another year and start to – to welcome in a new year. Hopefully 2021 will blow 2020 out of the water because, I mean, let's be honest, even with, you know, there's some things to be thankful for, but this has been a pretty, uh, been a pretty crappy year. So I want to try and take this time that you're listening to the podcast for this episode to to remind us what we really, really, really all about. And I, and as you know, like I read a lot and I, I like, reading and I like finding things and I, and I like trying to find things that speak to me in different passages. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read you some excerpts of from two different books and I'm hoping that they'll do what they did to me when I read them and they've kind of inspire you and, and, and give you the, your, stoke your fire, maybe not get it all the way back, but stoke your fire so that you can realize what this is really all about and what we're really here for. The first is from a book called The Fire Inside by Steve Delson. Uh, it's a book I've had for a long, long time. And uh, there's an excerpt in here that I read and, and, and I read and I was just kind of flipping through this book the other day. And, you know, just rereading some things. And this piece really, really spoke to me. Uh, if you own the book, it's on page 188. And I and I don't know whose story this is because The Fire Inside is just a collection of stories from firefighters all over the world. And I don't know whose story this is. A lot of them are anonymous in here. But when I read it, I, I was like, man, this is this is what it's all about. This is and this is speaking to me and, and, and I hope that it does the same to you. So back to the book here. I was working Christmas Eve. I had four kids and the family never liked it, but it went with the job. I told my wife this even before we got married. I said, I want to be a fireman. That means birthdays, anniversaries, holidays I might miss. It's going to happen, so we have to get used to it and work around it. This particular Christmas Eve started out quiet. Gas leaks and stuff, just the routine. About 4.30 in the morning, we got a call. It was 117th Street in Harlem between Morningside and Manhattan Avenue. We pulled up, and there was black smoke smoke rolling out of the third floor window. So the guys 
went in the front door. Meanwhile, I climbed up the aerial ladder and went in through the front window. You couldn't see anything. And as I went in and as I went in and I knocked the Christmas tree over, I could feel some boxes and some presents and I thought, "Ain't this a bitch? Santa was already here." But the good thing about it was Jerry Ankin was the forcible entry man. Jerry made the search of the apartment. He pulled an 11-year-old kid out of the back bedroom. The kid wasn't breathing, no pulse, but they dragged him out in the hallway and gave him mouth-to-mouth. And they brought him back. He started breathing again. When I got home that morning, I was still high. But I was late, and my wife and kids were upset. We had this rule on Christmas. Until Dad got home from work, the kids couldn't come downstairs to see the tree. And normally I would be there when they woke up because one of the other guys would come in early for me. This time I didn't get home until 10.45 a.m. Everyone was mad, so I started telling my wife and kids the story. As I'm telling the story, I'm getting teary-eyed. I said to my wife and kids, if I knew this would happen every year, I'd work every Christmas Eve for the rest of my time on the job. I probably sound like a nut, but it was awesome seeing that kid breathing again. And again, that's just a short story from that book of a collection of stories, The Fire Inside. But really, that inspires me because I've bitched about having to work Christmas Eve, Christmas Day before. I come from a really big family, even though you know in 2020 we, we've lost a significant amount of members in my family. But we still have huge gatherings, and there's still a ton of us. That's what the, the, the part of it, of being a big family, is all about. But we have huge get-togethers, and there's always so much food, and there's always so much just joy and happiness and family, you know, just get, you know gathering, and it's just it's great, you know, it really is, and I look forward to it every every year, and I especially look forward to it more now, having the massive amount of loss in our family that we've had this year, that you don't know when the last time you're gonna be able to go to these things, right? You don't know when someone's last Christmas or Super Bowl or birthday is. And so you should try to make every effort you can to make those things. But, but we all signed up for this job. We knew it was part of the job. No one came to our house, as my good buddy John Dixon said, nobody came to the house and drafted you into the fire service. It didn't happen. No one held a gun to your head and made you go be a firefighter, take the CPAT. All of those things. No one made you do that. We signed up for this job knowing that that was a part of it, that you were going to miss certain things, that you were sacrificing a piece of your family life for the chance, for the chance to serve others and hopefully make the difference in someone's living and dying. And when I read that story, when I read that little short story, man, it just it, – it really like smacks me in the head like this is what it's all about, dumbass. And, and guess what, folks? You may not get that opportunity every day. Uh, I don't work in the in Harlem, you know. I don't get the opportunity to pull someone out of a fire every day of of my career. I don't get the opportunity to to go to a fire every day of my career. But God bless, you know – We owe it to the people that we signed up to serve to be ready for that opportunity, to be prepared for that opportunity. That is what this job is all about, putting our lives on the line to give that other person a chance to live. 
And I'm not saying, you know, be crazy. I don't have a suicide wish or a death wish or anything like that. But we do have to inherit a certain amount of risk when we sign up to do this. And just that that, that story just really, really, really inspires me to stop bitching so much and to be thankful that I've got a good job that I, you know, I've got not just a job, but, but a career, a lifestyle, a way of life that is so rewarding, you know, and it can beat you down. I get that. I'm not trying to be a Mr. Rah-Rah guy over here. I'm not trying to do that at all. That would be disingenuous. If you come and ask me, am I happy every day with my fire department? The answer would be no. The answer would be no. Yes, I bitch and complain sometimes. Yes, I bitch. But the sense of service is still there. The sense of wanting to help people is still there. And when the tones go off and you roll out the door, all that other bullshit is swept aside. Or it should be swept aside. If you can't sweep it aside, then it's probably time to go do something else. I get it. I get it. You don't get paid enough. You're there on Christmas. You're there on Christmas Day. You're, you're, you missed your son's birthday. You missed Thanksgiving. You know, we need a raise. We don't have, we have staffing issues. Your officer sucks or your chief sucks or, you know, the, the, the plan or the direction of the fire department sucks. I get it. I have complained about each and every one of those things myself. I understand. I've been there and I get it. But go back to that story. Go back to that story. That is what it's all about. Putting it on the line so that another so that a little boy can have another Christmas. Possibly stretching in on a kitchen fire and throwing a salvage cover over the Christmas tree so that the presents can survive a small fire. And survive water damage and smoke damage so that that family, while they may have to have Christmas somewhere else, they can get the Christmas presents out of there. That's what it's all about. That's what we do. That's why you're there on Christmas Eve. That's why you're there on Christmas Day. And that's why you're there on all the other days. So when it starts to get hard, when it starts to get blurry of why you keep getting up at 515 and rolling into shift, and why you keep checking your air pack, and your and why you're drilling, why you are drilling the week before Christmas. I get it. Christmas, Christmas in the fire service is a lot like uh, school time, right? The teachers stop giving you work. It's kind of like, all right, we're just kind of filling time, you know. Nobody, but that's why you're drilling on those days, right? That's why you're drilling. That's why you're checking your air pack. That's why you're doing all those things. That's why you're doing all those things. And so. When it starts getting like that, you know, just try to refocus. Try to try to find that story. Come back and listen to this po- episode of the podcast. Or pick up 20,000 Alarms. And I've covered this book on the podcast before. Um, I've covered this book on the podcast before. 20,000 Alarms uh, by Lieutenant Richard Hamilton. A classic in the fire service. If you're lucky enough to find this book for under $100, buy it because it's out of print. It's out of print. They don't make any more. So the ones that are out there are the ones that are out there. I have the uh, a paperback version. Um, I think I paid about $80 for it. Uh, I know there's some hardback ones out there. 
But uh, you want a good Christmas present for the firefighter in your life or, or a Christmas present for that firefighter you're trying to inspire? Buy them 20,000 alarms. They'll eat it up. They'll read it in less than a day. But what I really want to focus on is the chapter of 20,000 alarms. Chapter 15 starts on page 131 of the paperback called I'll Be Home for Christmas. Maybe. My first year in Rescue 2 wasn't exactly uneventful. I was working the men hard on training programs, and we were responding to thousands of alarms, which became routine. But it wasn't until December 16, 1960, that something really big happened. That was the day the two airliners collided over Staten Island, a United DC-8 and a TWA Super Constellation. I think they, I think they were. One crashed on Staten Island, the other landed about eight blocks from our firehouse. By some grim coincidence, it crashed head-on into the Pillar of Fire Church on Sterling Avenue, Brooklyn. It was a pillar of fire, all right, 82 dead. I wasn't working when the crash came, but it was such a huge emergency that all off-duty rescue men were called at home to report at once. I jumped into my VW and took off. I went to the firehouse first to get my working clothes and then went to the scene. When I got there, all of Rescue 2 was working, all 28 men under Lieutenant Joe Galvin. There wasn't much skill involved in this job. You just had to have a strong back and a strong stomach. I've never seen anything quite so gruesome. We dug through debris all that afternoon, and when darkness came, we set up big searchlights and went on digging. There were parts of bodies everywhere. With the exception of one little boy who died later, not one of the victims so far as I can recall was intact. An arm here, a head there. Some were burned, some weren't. It was a nightmare of crushed aluminum, shredded upholstery, burst open luggage, everything charred, waterlogged and mangled. After we found the flight recorder, we took a break, and they gave us hot coffee in the basement of another church nearby. When I finally got home, it was long past dinner time, but Jenny had roast beef waiting in the oven. I took one look at the meat and knew I couldn't eat it. The next day was my regular tour of duty, and I returned to the crash scene. It looked like another day's work at least. We were all bent over, our attention directed to the mess under, underfoot, so we didn't notice the large column of smoke rising into the sky in the general direction of Brooklyn Navy Yard. When we finally did see it, I thought it was probably coming from some large industrial stacks in the area until the radio began to crackle. Hey Lou, my chauffeur Bob Smith said, they're calling you. Started back toward the rescue truck, thinking something was wrong at home, but the dispatcher said, take your company to Brooklyn Navy Yard immediately, Lieutenant. There's an aircraft carrier on fire. It was 11.30 a.m. I'd seen some pretty big things burning in my life, including the aircraft carrier Bunker Hill during World War II. But by the time we got onto the pier next to the carrier constellation, I knew this was going to be the biggest fire of my life. The ship was the largest in the world at the time, several city blocks long and several stories high. A great gray giant that was still under construction. It was incredible to see the smoke coming out of all the parts of her like smolder, like a smoldering bomb. The dock was already a madhouse of activity with firemen, police, shipyard workers, and ambulances everywhere. The temperature was below freezing, and a light snow was beginning to fall. I didn't have time to think about being tired. The one-two punch of major catastrophes in 48 hours was too much to comprehend. 
I just knew that we were in for another rough assignment. First orders we received to get hand lines up onto the flight deck. I didn't think this was going to do much good. I had the advantage of knowing what a carrier was like on the inside, how it was built, and I knew from my experience aboard the Midway that this fire could be buried deep within many decks of the ship. Along with a few hundred other firemen from many companies around Brooklyn, we clambered around, finally making our way to the huge flight deck. Smoke was getting heavier now. Fire seemed concentrated at a place near the center of the ship, but it was all down below. What had happened was the driver of a small truck had run into a fuel drum of fuel on the flight deck, knocking the spigot off and letting the fuel run unnoticed through the plates until it came to a place where some welders were working, and then everything went boom. The most serious problem with ship fires is that you can only come at them from the top. In a tenement fire, you can work up on it from underneath in relative safety. But a fire in a steel vessel is contained everywhere but at the top. You have to climb down and you have to climb down to the chimney to get at it. And that's what we did. Workmen were coming up out of the ship by every available exit, stumbling into the clear air and light snow like drunks. The fire had obviously gotten quite a head start before we got there. For almost an hour the contractors had tried to put it out by themselves. Now it was really roaring. Under the flight deck of a carrier is a second cavernous deck where airplanes are stored. This is called the hangar deck. Below this deck is where there are storerooms, workshops, other small compartments. It was one of these that we found a group of 15 or 20 workers all huddled together, afraid to come out. Smoke in the room wasn't particularly heavy, but the heat was building up and the men thought they had been cut off by fire. When we told them there was a way out, they wouldn't believe us. They were on the edge of panic. I didn't want to have to haul these men to safety. When I was sure that they could make it themselves, I knew there were going to be others or worse off. Look, I pleaded, we got in here. You can get out. All you have to do is follow, a le follow the leader. I'll send one man ahead of you. All of you join hands and follow single file. It's going to be smoky. It may get pretty bad, but you'll make it out if you stay cool. They finally agreed, and, I, and, I saw, and the last I saw of them were following one of my firemen out to safety. That left me with Hank Zercher and Tony Motti. We moved one deck lower into the ship. And at this level, we began to find dead bodies. Fire must have hit some of these men with great suddenness. They were roasted to death right where they were working. Others were piled up against bulkheads they couldn't open. All the power was off on these lower decks. So we could only see with the help of our lanterns. When we found bodies, we hollowed up to the firemen behind us and passed the dead back. It would have been easy enough just to put a corpse on your shoulder at this point and use it as your ticket into fresh air. I wouldn't blame any fireman who did that. But I knew we had a more important job. There might, just might, be somebody still alive in some of these compartments. And it was Rescue's job to find out. A foreman who was frantically running through the smoke, looking for some of his men to come and said, I've got four friends in there. I think they're four decks down, right under the fire. I looked at Hank Zercher and he looked at me. The deck we were on was pretty bad. Pulled a couple of dozen bodies out already. What would it be like one more deck down? Foreman was desperate. Somebody doesn't go after my friends, he said. I know they're going to be dead. 
I could have said that I thought the chances were pretty good that they already were dead, but that that's never a fireman's answer. We said we'd see what we could do. Foreman led us around until we found a ladder going down. I told Tony Motti to try and find a rope and hand line and get back with us. He said he thought we were crazy. I pretended I was calm. I said I was going to try and get under the fire. If you can, I said, send some more water down here and cool things off a little bit. Motti just shook his head. The deck under our feet was slippery because the heat was melting the soles of our boots. Some places the plates were beginning to turn a dull red. I knew there must be a lot of fire below us. But there were also four guys. We'll be, com- we'll be coming back up in a while, I said to Motti. Don't forget the water. Then I started down the ladder. Zercher after me. Up to now, we'd used about six of the 20 minutes of air in our Scott bottles. We also had one spare bottle for the two of us. From this point on, it was going to be hard to live without them. The ladder went straight down. I could feel the heat of the steel rungs through my gloves. We climbed past bundles of electrical cables with the insulation melting off of them, some of it still smoldering. Finally, our feet touched the bottom and we began to move along a steel corridor that seemed to radiate heat like the inside of an oven. Smoke choked the beam, of la- the beam of my lantern so I could only see a few feet in front of me. I thought I could hear some water coming down behind us. Maybe Mahdi had found a hand line. We moved ahead, looking through the, ex- the eyepieces of the Scott masks, searching from side to side. We had moved only a few yards from the foot of the ladder when I spotted the four men, the foreman's friends. They were all in a heap, moaning, but at least they were alive. They'd been lucky. If they'd been in much further, we might not have found them. They hadn't been burned, but the smoke and heat had brought them down, and they were losing consciousness fast because there wasn't much oxygen left in the compartments. While I was getting a hitch around the fourth man, I began to sense trouble. I could feel the carrier moving under me. Of course it wasn't. When I tried to reach for the rope, my arms wouldn't obey. Although I knew the symptoms of carbon dioxide poisoning, I tried to ignore them. Had to ignore them. There was still one man to save. With Zercher's help, I got him roped up and hauled away. Even with the fresh Scott bottle, my condition didn't improve, taking too much carbon monoxide during this operation, and now no amount of air was going to help me. Stuff was in my blood. My mind was still working okay, but my body was turning to rubber. Took one last look around the compartment, saw a big open hole in the deck, crawled over and focused my beam of lantern into the void below. I could see some machinery and other stuff, but no bodies. Figured we'd done all we could, so I said, okay, Hank, let's get out of here. I don't remember much after that. All the heat and smoke seemed to disappear. I think I remember Tony Motti and the others reaching down to pull me off Zercher's back. Then they put me in a Stokes basket, and I could feel the snow falling on my face like little needles. They used a big crane on the pier to pick me up and swing me off the ship, but I only know that because there was a picture of it in the Daily News the next day. As for the ride to the hospital, must have been a nightmare for the guys who rode with me because I had lost consciousness altogether by then. And all I could do was scream at the driver to hurry up because I was either dying or dead. I came around a little in the emergency room. They cut off all my clothes right down to my underwear. And I looked up into the lights while they stuck all kinds of tubes and wires in me. One of the firemen, I don't remember who it was, was looking down at me and was crying. I said, what are you crying for? He said, I'm not going to tell you, Lou. Under the bright lights, the skin on my arms and hands seemed to be turning purple. That's strange, I thought. Is he crying because I'm going to die? 
The cop who called Jenny must have had the same information. He didn't waste any words or soften them either. You better get yourself over to Kings County Hospital, ma'am. Your husband is dying. I've always said compared to firemen, cops have no compassion. Outside the emergency room, through new, though New York was being blanketed by a heavy snowstorm, Jenny, desperate as she was, couldn't get from Wantaw to the hospital and had to wait until the next day when she took the kids out of school and another fireman drove them all in. I woke up that next day in a big private room, the kind of place where hospital people always put firemen at city expense if there's space. I could think of, all I could think of was the flight deck of the carrier. What am I doing here? I asked the nurse. Be quiet and lie still, she said. Right now you're supposed to be only 50-50 to live, but you're looking better to me. Where's Fireman Zercher? I asked. He's okay. He's alive. Then Father Fox came in. He was sort of an honorary fire department chaplain. Nice man. I'd known him a long time. He moved to the side of the bed and said, Do you want to say anything to me, Dick? His tone was very quiet and serious. Yes, I said. I want to go home. No, no, he said. You certainly can't do that. But how would you feel if I gave you your last rites of the church? Last rites? Who needs last rites, I said. Anyway, I'm a Lutheran, not a Catholic. Well, I'll tell you, said Father Fox. I already gave them to you once on the deck of the carrier yesterday, but you didn't know it. Now that you're conscious, I'd like to do it again. It won't work, Father, I said. I'm a black Protestant. He just smiled. I know, Dick, he said, but every little bit helps. Then he started whatever it is they do, and I saw a couple of Catholic nurses in the room crossing themselves, and I really began to believe something must be wrong with me. When Jenny arrived, she looked pretty grave, too. There was talk around the bed about transfusions and blood washes. What the hell was going on here? I was Dick Hamilton, 10 years a fireman. My body wasn't going to ever fail me. Besides, Christmas was only a few days off, and I wanted to be home with my family. A fireman doesn't get to spend Christmas with his family very often. They let me out on Christmas Eve, only after I promised the doctor to take it easy. I was still weak and sick, but I could walk. First thing I did was hang Christmas lights. I stayed home until the middle of January. It was that bad. But still, I was lucky. 52 people died on the Constellation that day. It had been a mass roast. While I was home, I began to hear talk about what Zercher and I had done. They were saying it was the best rescue of the day. A sure bet to win a medal. I was beginning to have mixed feelings about these honors. But on June 6th, the following year, Fireman Hank Zercher and I both won Class 1 awards for our work on the carrier. It was the first time in the history of the fire department that two men had won class ones for the same event. Mayor Robert Wagner presented me with the Emily Trevor Mary B. Warren Medal. Then for saving my life, Hank was awarded the William H. Todd Memorial Medal, the same one I'd earned the year before for the Queen's sewer job. We both went back to Rescue 2 full of pride. And on June 7th, we went back to the false alarms and garbage fires. I know that was a little bit long, and if you're still with me, I did skip around a little bit throughout that chapter, so I didn't read the entire chapter, but to me, that story, again, is one of inspiration and one that really tells the reason about what we do, but it also gives a good view into that work-life balance, that legacy versus impact that we talk about so much on the podcast and I, that I can't take credit for that my good buddy Ben Martin wrote an article about years and years and years ago, but really resonated with me. But that 
that story of of what it was, you know, that's what we do. That's why we all got into the fire service. And I get it. Smells and bells, false alarms, unsatisfied. Sometimes you go months without a fire. I get it. I get it. But we have to be ready for that incident. We have to be ready for that incident. We have to be ready for the and, – and, 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 and Lieutenant Hamilton, he had to be ready for several. I mean he was – at the time he was – when he retired, he was one of the most decorated firemen that ever worked in the FDNY. And so he got to experience that a lot. But you may not have his experience. You may not have his opportunity. You may only get one chance. You may only get one chance to make a difference in somebody's life, to make an impact in your fire department or in your fire service in general, and you have to be ready for it. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready, and that's what we do in the fire service. We stay ready so that when that opportunity presents itself, we are ready to act. But you also you get a little glimpse into how Richard Hamilton felt about his family, saying that he was not going to be in the hospital on Christmas. He was not going to be in the hospital on Christmas because a fireman doesn't get to spend many Christmases at home. And he was damn sure not going to be in that hospital if he could help it. So I say all that to say this. Remember why we're here. Take the bullshit that this year has thrown at you and let it refocus you. And that's not and, and that's easier said than done. I get that. And and I and I know this comes off as kind of preachy, but it really is and and sometimes I'm saying it just as much for for the listeners as I am for myself because self-talk can get pretty brutal sometimes. You can start to tell yourself that you're wasting your time in the fire service, that you're wasting your life away, that you should be doing something else, anything else. You could make more money doing something else. You could make a better living. You could be home more. You could do, but that's not what we're all about. That's not how we're wired. Every time I think about doing some other job, every time I'm like, but I wouldn't be happy doing that. I wouldn't be happy to, even for all the bullshit that I've had to put up with in the fire service, all the, I mean, I missed, uh, I missed, I've missed so many wrestling matches. I've missed so many birthdays. I've missed so many, you know, uh, even, and even when we, my wife does great, my family is great. They adjust to it. Like we've done Thanksgiving two days after Thanksgiving. We've done Christmas, you know, they, they've come to the firehouses and, and all that kind of stuff. And I get this year is even more difficult because a lot of fire departments are saying no visitors whatsoever, not on Christmas day, not on Thanksgiving, not on anything. And I get that makes it even more difficult. But I, and I just came back from the Pensacola Beach Fire Conference and I got to hear Mark Wesseldine speak. A guy who was in the FDNY, spent 25, 30 years in the FDNY, retired, could not, and this is his words, I can't get the fire department out of my system. I can't get the fire department out of my system. He is took a so he took a deputy chief job. He retired from that, and now he's taken a third. He's taken a, another deputy chief job with a different fire department. He can't get the fire service out of his system, and even as much as sometimes it 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 is hard, and it is. If you really truly are about this job, it's not just a job to you. It's it's the, what you're going to be. It's who you are. It's who you are then I don't think you can get it out of your system either. I tried, okay? I've tried to get it out of my system, and it just won't happen. 
And that's a good thing. That means you know you're in the right place. You know you're in the right place. If you could easily just walk away from this, then you were in the wrong fucking place. And I apologize for cursing. But that's just the truth. If you could easily walk away from the fire service and not give a crap if you were ever a firefighter again, then you were never in the right place in the first time. You should have never got into the fire service because it's not for you. This can't be some transient profession. This can't be a five and I'm out. It's too difficult. It's too hard. It's too much sacrifice. But if this is really what you're all about, you also have to make the fire service a priority, but you also have to make your family a priority because they could be the ones getting that phone call. And unfortunately, my wife has gotten that phone call before. Nothing as dire as Lieutenant Hamilton, but she's gotten the, hey, I'm, I got hurt at a fire. I'm, I'm at the hospital or I need you to come get me and, you know, so on and so forth. I've had that. I've had to make that phone call before. It sucks, but that's why you've got to make sure that you're focusing on your family as well. It is a balance, and sometimes we are bad about it. Sometimes we are extremely bad about it, but you have to be able to dedicate time to both if you ever want to have a, a shred of success in this job. So I hope those inspired you this holiday season. I hope those stories just really uh, speak to you like they speak to me. I hope that even if you're struggling, even if you're having a difficult time, even if you're, you know, if you're, if you, your family can't come to the firehouse on Christmas, if you're, if you're, uh, if they didn't get to come for Thanksgiving, or even if, if you're home, you know, do the right things here. Spend, make sure if you're home, be home. If you're like me, I like to listen to fires even when I'm not there. Don't do that. Don't do that on Christmas Day. At least, you know, be present when you're at home. Be present. And I struggle with that too because I want to know, especially if one of my family members is working in their respective fire department. I want to know if they're going to a fire. Like I just want to know. So be present when you're at home. Do the things that you need to do to show your family that you're protecting yourself while you're on the job, but also that you appreciate the sacrifices that they make so that you can do the job because that's part of the reason that we don't that we, that we do have such a large divorce rate and a large you know relationship problems and all of those things in the fire service is because us, the idiot firefighters and firemen out there, forget to tell the people that love us and that we love that we appreciate everything that's going on that they do so that we can do our job and that we care about them and that we and that we're trying to do better and we don't talk to them. We just we just take them for granted. I know I've done that in the past. And I'm trying to get better. It ain't easy. We're all humans. We all fail. It ain't easy. But if we don't make an effort, we're never going to be successful. We're never going to reach the the highest levels of being a father, a husband, a brother, a sister, uh, a son, a daughter, a husband, a firefighter, a company officer, a chief officer. If you don't have any sort of semblance of balance, you're screwing up. There's no way you're going to reach your potential in any of your – either the fire service or your family life. So I hope those stories inspire you. I hope those stories 
refocus you. And I hope at the end of the day that you don't let the bull crap that is 2020 get you down. I hope that all of you have a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, or whatever other holiday you celebrate. I hope it's joyous, and I hope it's with the people you love, your fire service brothers and sisters, or your family, because I think we should. I heard this quote the other day at Pensacola Beach, and Kurt Isaacson said it. We may not always get along in the fire service, but we always love each other. And I think that's something we need to remember for this next year is that we may not always get along, but we always need to love each other. Especially in the fire service. We have a bond, not like any other job. You don't see postal workers hanging out outside of work like we do. You don't see them going to golf tournaments. You don't see, you don't see that. You don't see people that work at Capital One or banks or any of these other corporate. You don't see that. We're unique. We're special. We got the best job in the world. So thank you for listening. Have a Merry Christmas. Have a Happy New Year. Let's make 2021 a fresh start. And let's make 2021 the best damn year we can do. No matter through the trials, tribulations, or anything like that. There's still a couple days for Christmas left, so if you're having trouble finding something for that crew or the firefighter in your life, please allow me to give you some suggestions from some companies who support me in doing what I do. I couldn't do what I do without them, and so I want to give them their honor and respect for staying on board with the podcast for a horrible, horrible year. And the first one of those is Vanguard Safety Wear. Vanguard Safety Wear, the makers of the MK1 Ultra Fire Glove. They also have the Squad One Fire Gloves. They have the original MKs, the original MK1 Fire Gloves. They are made for work. They're some of the best fire gloves I wear. I wear the I wore the MK1s. Now I wear the MK1 Ultras. They're awesome. Go to VanguardSafetyWear.com or DingusFire. Dot com to get you a pair of Vanguard Safety Wear Fire Gloves, MK1 Ultra, Squad 1s, or the, red, or the original MKs made for work. Taylor's Tins. Taylor's Tins makes not only metal helmet fronts for helmets, they make all sorts of things. They make pump cards. They make uh, gifts for the firehouse. They make playing cards. They make all sorts of uh, informational cards for your CO monitor, your foregast monitor, everything. Those do, I can tell you, if you can think of it, Taylor's Tins can probably do it. Go to www.taylorstins.com and click on all those things that you're going to need. Click on the shop uh, drop-down icon. Uh, Taylor is going to send you some direct stuff, some custom art. It's going to be great. I wear a Taylor's Tin on my helmet every day. It still looks awesome. I've had it for a couple years now. Still looks awesome. Uh, need to get another one, though, because my position just changed, and I want to do something really cool for the position that I'm in. So stop burning up leather fronts. Start wearing Taylor's Tins. The Burn Box. 
Burnbox.com is a firefighter subscription box, much like all these other boxes. And what a really great thing to give for a firefighter this year. Uh, you know, if you have no idea what to get them, get them a subscription to this burn box, and they're going to send you all sorts of things. They're going to send you every month, you're going to get a different type of gear that's firefighter based and based on firefighter companies. I've, I've seen them give away firefighter swipe tools, metal wedges, belt buckles, ha- uh, hose hats, uh, all sorts of things, hazmat stuff, extra extrication gear. I mean, there's it, it, the possibilities are endless. So go to theburnbox.com and uh, man, I can tell you, you won't be disappointed with this product. High quality items from high quality companies that are fire service based and you get it every month. Really good stuff, theburnbox.com. IDLHtechnology.com, tacticalworksheet.com. My good buddy Andy Powell, a firefighter, fire chief, designed, in my opinion, some of the best command boards on the planet. They've got the big, large IDLH uh, command board. What I use when I'm riding it up in the car, or now in my current role as a battalion's aide and as riding up as a battalion when he's off, I use that IDLH command board. He also has the IDLH command board junior. I carry one in my pocket so that I can keep track of companies if I'm around back of a fire or actually have to be inside of a fire. Those things work great. They're, they make sense. They are laid out the way that my brain works and the, how I think about how I like my fire ground to run. They are awesome. So go to idlhtechnology.com. That's idlhtechnology.com or tacticalworksheet.com and pick you up some of the great, great products from Tactical Worksheet and IDLH Technology. You won't be disappointed. And lastly... What a great thing to give the firefighter in your life or the crew that you work with or pick one firefighter out of your department if you're from a small department and give them the gift of knowledge. And I'm specifically talking about the Fireground Commander Conference, March 22nd through the 24th, 2021 in Henrico County, Virginia at the Henrico Theater on Nine Mile Road. This year, it's going to be the biggest and best Fireground Commander Conference we've ever had. Ten speakers over three days, lunch provided every day for the low price of $175. I dare you to find a better value in the country. Dare you to find a better value in the country. Ten speakers, three days, lunch provided every day in one of the coolest venues on the East Coast, the Henrico Theater, for $175. We're going to have Ryan Pennington, Ben Schultz, Eric Wheaton, James Johnson, Mark Von Oppen, Dan Shaw, Doug, uh, Doug Mitchell from FDNY, and, and a whole bunch of other, uh, other people. And it's going to be one of the best conferences that we've ever put on. And I, I may be a little bit biased, but I personally think it's the absolute best educational conference in the state of Virginia. So make sure you join us, Fireground Commander Conference, March 22nd to the 24th, 2021. And lastly, you know what we do. Make sure you're spending one hour a day working on your physical fitness, being ready for the job that we swore to do. Make sure you're spending one hour a day in the library reading something about our profession. Reading Firehouse Magazine, Fire Engineering, FDTN, 20,000 Alarms, The Fire Inside. Something about our job. And make sure you're spending one hour a day doing some sort of hands-on training. And for Christmas this year, I want to add a fourth hour. 
And this doesn't even take an hour. I want you to spend an hour being thankful and thanking the people that you love and care about. Thank the people that you work with. Even thank your enemies because your enemies are giving you fuel. Thank the people that support you. Thank your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your nieces, your nephews, your grandmother, your grandfather, your wife, your sons, your daughters, the fire chief that inspired you. Thank them. If you do that, you spend one hour in the gym, one hour in the library, one hour doing hands-on training, and one hour thanking people, not only will you become a pretty phenomenal firefighter, I think it'll start to make you a pretty phenomenal human. And we could all use some work in that. So thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Stay safe. Stay aggressive. I'm out.